Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest set of vodcasts. And this is going to be on how to perform a coronary CTA, the basics. And I was asked to give this talk a couple weeks ago, so I put together the material I had, and I've kind of addressed this topic before, but really took a new look at it and looked at many of the different aspects. And this will be a multi-part talk. I'll be taking you in the next few weeks, probably over through the new year. So in the audience, I asked how many people were doing CTA in terms of practice, one to two a day, three to five a day, and six or more a day. And despite the fact that CTA has been around in cardiac for a while, the majority of people weren't doing it, probably 15% were, and the people who were were doing one to two cases a day. Most people, when I asked the question, if you're doing cardiac CTA, the hours of service, most of them said eight to five. It was a few people said they were doing it till later, 7 o'clock maybe, some people 11 o'clock, but essentially no one was doing 24-7. Okay, so that kind of puts you in perspective. Think about your own practice and some of the opportunities. So what are the basics? Before you get started with cardiac CTA, what do you need to know? What are the challenges of performing a cardiac CTA successfully? And what are the challenges once a study has been performed in the correct interpretation of the study? So simple things, things we always kind of comment on. You need to have a state-of-the-art scanner. 64 slice is basically the minimum to give you the spatial resolution, temporal resolution, and volume data sets you need. And I should also mention, of course, low radiation dose. We need to give low radiation dose to our patients. So with a 64 slice or better, you're talking about spatial resolution under 0.4 millimeters. With 64, you're probably talking about temporal resolution of about 100 150 to 180 milliseconds, dual source at 75 milliseconds, uh, true volume data sets, and low radiation dose. Again, the dose will be scanner dependent as well as protocol dependent, and we'll get back to that a little bit later. And of course, when you think about the numbers on cardiac CT, here are the numbers with cardiac cath. Their temporal resolution is better, spatial resolution is a touch better, and dose is pretty comparable. Of course, the advantage of coronary CTA is you can do an invasive, you're doing an invasive study, so you can do a procedure at the same time, put a stent in, which is why we say if the patient has severe chest pain and you know the patient has coronary disease, you go to angio, not to CT. But it's important to recognize, as this article recently from the New England Journal of Medicine makes the point, that slightly more than one-third of patients without known disease who underwent cath had obstructive coronary artery disease, which means two-thirds of the studies are negative, which means, as the article goes on to say, better strategies for risk stratification are needed to inform decisions and to increase the diagnostic yield of, of cardiac cath in routine clinical practice. So again, you can see this is where CT comes in because of course, look at CT, 99% negative predictive value. So if we say the study's negative, you can stop. And that'll affect the use of cath studies because many people will not go to cath. Now when I speak about scanners, I just came back from RSNA yesterday giving this talk. There were newer scanners at the RSNA, but no one's gone above 256 or 320 or dual source. There have been improvements in the scanners. Most of the vendors had improvements. There are two levels. One, radiation dose with new detectors in some scanners, and two were lower price scanners. So you can get 64 slice at a price that you can get for four slice just a couple years ago. So in terms of scanners, it's important to understand your scanner, its advantages and its disadvantages and its limitations. And you need to design protocols accordingly. 
coronary artery scan times at 64 slides are closer to 10, 12 seconds, and dual source can be under a second. Spatial resolution probably is not a whole lot different, 64 and beyond, but there are many things you can look at. And so when you look at the technologies, we talk about increased detector width, maybe you can scan the heart in one rotation, potentially, or increased spiral pitch, where you can move the table fast enough that you can scan very quickly, under a second, under a half a second usually. And so the classic one with the detector width increase is Toshiba Quillian 1, 0.35 gantry rotation time. You can see the coverage is 160 millimeters per rotation, which can cover a hard. Temporal resolution is nowhere near the dual source. It's more like a 64 slice. And some articles, some comments. Coverage with 256 or 320 provides advantages over 64 slice in terms of image quality, reductions in dose and contrast dose, and imaging in the setting of arrhythmia at regular heart rates. Potential issues with these scanners, um, there's issues with data distortion in case of arrhythmias or ectopic beats, there's increased x-ray scatter which can result in increased image noise as well as streak artifact and result in increased dose. Uh, in the presence of high heart rates, uh, that's where dual source really has an advantage over the 320s for example. Uh, dual source maintains its temporal resolution due to rotation time and table travel speed. Uh, the 320 would need multi-segment reconstruction from two to three heartbeats to increase temporal resolution and obtain adequate image quality. So I won't go into the advantages of getting a dual source scanner, but that's one of them. And so with dual source, you're having two x-ray tubes, you know, the classic thing we speak about. And so your speed is indeed increased. Uh, dual source uh, can also take advantage of many things uh, like like dual energy, for example, those are all possibilities routinely uh, that can be done. So something indeed to be aware of. Again, with dual source, we can acquire prospectively, retrospectively, or flash mode. Flash mode is with the super fast, theoretically a maximum pitch of four, though in reality it's more like 3.4, but it means you can scan a heart typically in under half a second. So indeed becomes very good, and when done correctly, you can have radiation doses around a millisievert. Now it's saying that if you want to do flash mode, the heart rate has to be typically 60 or less. So beta blockers indeed become critical, so it's really for the right patient. And you can see very nice examples in 3D or 2D of the details of the coronary artery, SA nodal branch of the right coronary, in this case, or here the left anterior descending, and circ. Just very nice 2D and 3D mappings of each of the vessels through the right coronary. When you have patients with disease, you can see the stenosis mid-portion RCA here. You can see some minimal plaque in the rest of the right coronary. You could track that vessel and really get a great look of both the calcified, but particularly the non-calcified plaque. Now, resolution is always a challenge in terms of quantification. Could you make the scanners better that the temporal or spatial resolution or volume coverage can in increase? The answer is you can. If you improve resolution, which is probably the main thing for us now, calcium blooming artifact, we have dense calcifications, uh, would tend to be less of a problem. 
and perhaps you could do better plaque characterization. Those are the two big limitations with this limited resolution. The problem is to increase the resolution, to double the resolution to achieve 0.25 instead of 0.5, the dose will need to be increased by 16-fold. So really, we're talking about a compromise between radiation dose and image resolution. So it's really a tricky problem. New detectors, iterative reconstruction are the things that are going to be helpful. And so there are different things coming along. RSNA uh, iterative reconstruction was very popular, and that seems to be a potential for improving this process. Different manufacturers like Siemens showed new detector material, new construction detectors. So again, things are indeed moving positively. In terms of temporal resolution, you can increase gantry speed, have more than two x-ray tubes, multi-segment reconstructions potentially are all things that can be done. So we are seeing improvements in technology, but there are some challenges uh, sort of compromising between radiation dose and image quality and resolution, for example. Now let's look a little bit carefully now at coronary disease. Uh, Arthur Agassin speaks about risk factors for heart disease, hypercholesterolemia, hypertension, diabetes, and smoking are four of the most common, but those are the known risk factors. What about the unknown risk factors? What about all the genetic impact? All becomes critical. So it's more than just thinking about the known risk factors. Uh, a third of patients who develop an MI have no classic risk factors. And that's where Agustin got involved with CT. Perhaps CT can provide more information. It has a high sensitivity for atherosclerotic disease because you're looking at plaque. A negative calcium score is a high negative predictive value for the presence of atherosclerotic disease. A negative score can probably rule out significant coronary artery disease in a patient with atypical chest pain. Though more and more that probably isn't going to be true, particularly in certain populations like in African Americans where calcium scores of zero are common even in the presence of extensive coronary disease. And calcium scoring has been shown to be a better marker than traditional risk factors in several studies. So you look at a case like this, pretty extensive calcification, multiple plaques, or a case like this with single plaque, will quantify with an Agassiz scoring system. We also do volume scores. We also do equivalent mass scores. And probably the volume score would be theoretically the most accurate, but at the end of the day, there are large patient charts of 70,000 plus patients that give us the information on an age and sex level of what a calcium score means in a 63-year-old female. So most people will use the Agassiz score, and indeed that works very, very nicely. Now, the accuracy of CT for coronary calcification is sufficient in many cases for stratification of patient risk, and that's been the big push. And articles are very clear that by identifying high-risk patients, we're able to figure out who's going to benefit most from more aggressive therapy. The point being that if a patient has no clinical symptoms, even the lab values are good, everything's good, stress tests are good, but they have calcification, those patient, patients would need to be treated more aggressively. And you can see in this case, Budov mentions, particularly with scores reaching 100, the approximate predictive power is tenfold for scores more than 100. So again, very important. Now, the American Heart Association uh, actually addressed this issue a couple years ago and changed their recommendations. Now, an intermediate risk group intermediate risk patients, which are those that have a 10-year risk of 10 to 20 percent, they felt that calcium scoring would be good. Now, the point with calcium scoring, the way you use it, 
is you always would increase the patient's risk by having a high score. They'd be treated more aggressively. You never would lower the patient's risk. And because of that, they say if you're a low-risk patient, you don't need any CT. But of course, then the issue is perhaps you should because determining what's low and what's intermediate is not always very simple. The reason they recommended against it, you can say, you can see why, is because they said that if they recommended for it, it'd be population screening, and they weren't willing to do that at this point. The high-risk patients probably make more sense because they're saying, what difference does it make in high-risk patients? They should be treated aggressively. The score is not going to make a difference. Um, so perhaps high-risk don't need it, but I'd bet low-risk and intermediate-risk indeed do. Now, when you look at the numbers, uh, here's a good article looking at 35,765 asymptomatic patients, half of which almost had scores of zero. They were able to say that uh, a low score uh, predicted, uh, a negative predicted value was 99.9%. Uh, sensitivity to detect a cardiovascular event was 98.1%. So, again, the importance of low scores, concluding in their words, Asymptomatic patients without calcium ca coronary artery calcification with a score of zero are shown to have a very low risk, 0.27 per year, of future cardiovascular events during the subsequent three to five years, and is a group unlikely to derive short-term benefit from risk-reducing pharmacotherapy. So these patients, they're saying, do not, do not need to give them Lipitor, for example. Um, and the authors also mentioned there are a number of different studies uh, out there that show similar findings, and this is a way of speaking to patients. Now, of course, it's important to recognize when you do calcium scoring, you're not really determining the presence of stenosis. Is this plaque causing stenosis or is it remodeling? It's a well-defined plaque, but it's only when I go to coronary CTA that I can see the plaque is eccentric, there's positive modeling, and there's no stenosis present. So again, think about the importance of calcium scoring, but remember it has certain limitations. It may not tell you everything. It may not tell you, as in this case, whether there's stenosis. I always ask the question at the RSNA quiz, uh, can you judge percent stenosis based on calcium scoring? The answer is no. We see sometimes high calcium scores and no stenosis. We see low scores or zero scores, and we do see stenosis. So it's not exactly uh, you know, perfect. And the presence of very dense calcification, again, it's always going to be trickier. Now, this article by Lau makes the point that the absence of detectable calcium does not reliably exclude coronary disease, that you can have a significant burden. Um, and that's a very, very important point. This article by Kelly makes the point, they looked at a number of patients that of the 167 patients that had no plaque on CT, 12 uh, with a normal score had at least moderate stenosis and five had severe stenosis when you went to CTA, eight of the 12 patients had stents. So their rule is that it doesn't exactly matter that the calcium score of zero is great, but be careful what it means. And you can see in this patient with a score of zero, look at the stenosis in the patient's LAD, the extensive non-calcified plaque present. So again, particularly in African Americans, this becomes important. Another slide showing you the same thing. Okay, so think about the comments before about using calcium score in the ER setting. You can see why a zero score is not valuable. This patient had a zero score, but look at the significant disease you saw that was present that you would need to treat very aggressively. So again, recognize that calcium scoring is good, 
but it does have certain strict limitations and not to make too much assumptions. Here's an article by Rahman. Calcium uh, scoring is useful for assessing coronary artery atherosclerosis. Our study assesses its role in this setting as an alternative to stress EKG. Adoption of calcium scoring as an alternative could prove cost-effective. So there are lots of interests, you know, there was articles about calcium scoring for chest pain. I mentioned that before. Those articles were published four years ago. But just most recently, someone tried to do a point-counterpoint looking at the same issue. And their, counterpoint, their count and counterpoint were percent of, of symptomatic patients with detectable atherosclerosis that is purely non-calcified is low, making calcium scoring highly sensitive for the presence of coronary artery disease. The absence of coronary artery calcification reliably excludes the presence of obstructed CAD and ACS in symptomatic patients, and the broad use of coronary artery calcification scoring in symptomatic with low intermediate pretest risk for obstructive coronary disease will result in decreased need for additional testing and maybe cost savings. Those are the thoughts, but Villini's in that article says you have to be very careful. The absence of coronary calcification among both symptomatic and asymptomatic patients significantly reduces the likelihood of obstructive coronary artery disease and is associated with low rates of cardiovascular events and deaths. So that's really good, but, and a big but. However, we feel that the widespread use of calcium scoring in symptomatic patients is severely limited because of test imprecision and the need for additional testing in most patients. Given recent impressive reductions in radiation doses with the use of modern contrast CTA that are comparable to the low radiation doses delivered in calcium scoring combined with the high accuracy compared with uh, a classic cath, we feel that CT angiography is the most effective technology for symptomatic patients. So again, this dead on arrival tends to be the answer. Now a couple other things with calcium scoring. I asked this question to the audience when I was doing some of the cardiac uh, lecturing at RSNA. Do you do calcium scoring prior to doing a CTA? Um, why might not you do it? Well, people say, well, you're doing a CTA, you have all the information you need, why do a calcium score? It's more radiation dose. Some people say perhaps you do the calcium scoring that if it's too high, you wouldn't go ahead and do the study, but most people don't follow that rule. Uh, our referring docs tend to like it because it helps them with risk stratification. Assuming the CTA is negative, they're able to look at the calcium score as another important factor. So again, um, there's no right answer to this. Uh, when you ask people uh, what they do, I, by show of hands, it's about 50-50. So again, there's no clear standard. At this time, except for younger patients, we're doing calcium scoring. Okay, what else? Well, what are the challenges in doing cardiac CTA? I think at the end of the day, it's getting a good quality study. If I have a good quality study, it's typically easy to read. If I have a bad study, if there's motion, if the timing isn't good, if there's all sorts of artifact, it's a bear to read. So how do we make certain that we always get the best study possible? And that's going to be part two of our talk. Thank you very much.